Welcome to Hamburger Business Review, a podcast about business school case studies on McDonald's. I'm Mike Merrill, here with my co-host and study buddy, Zach Rose. Today we're talking about the 1996 case study, McDonald's, the Arch Deluxe launch. I liked this case study. High level before we dive into this, what were your thoughts as you were reading through this? All of these start with sort of the presumption that you've never heard of McDonald's, which is in itself really funny. But this one did a great job of clarifying historically and with some some good spicy tidbits, the ethos of McDonald's. I feel like it really put McDonald's in the larger historical context, but also framed it for the point of this case study. And this one was very, it was all business. It wasn't quite as fun as when we were looking at the launch in the former Soviet Union, but it was definitely better than the McCafe. This case study is essentially broken down into three main parts, the history of McDonald's, and then we start talking about the marketing in general, and then we talk a little bit about premium hamburgers, then are just kind of left with this idea of the Arch Deluxe launch. I guess to kick things off, let's kind of run through that part one of what is McDonald's and what jumped out to you that they wanted to highlight in this case study. They did a good job summarizing for me, you know, started as a as a chain in San Bernardino bought out by Ray Kroc or sort of like co-opted by Ray Kroc and explaining how cheap it was to get a McDonald's franchise in the beginning and how much risk McDonald's was taking and how they judoed that into becoming a real estate company. That is a a fairly well-known thing about McDonald's, but they just did a really good job summarizing it here. The growth number that they highlighted was really interesting. 1984, 7,500 restaurants. And then by 1995, we're at 16,000-plus restaurants. Right. And also in the 1950s, you could start a McDonald's franchise with $950 and you would only have to give back less than 2% of gross sales. And today you're paying at least a million, I think. Plus the education process they put you through both Hamburger University as well as serving time in the kitchen. And they really expect an owner operator to be a hands-on participant in the running of a McDonald's franchise. And meanwhile, this is the thing they figured out is you don't own the building. You're now leasing the building and your franchise is only good at that building. So you are absolutely paying for the privilege to run their little semi-independent local fiefdom. Um, So they walk this through and they, they talk about the corporate control of the franchises. There's a scene where Ray Kroc comes in and berates an owner operator for his bathroom and like they talk about it being something you can hear from six blocks away and then turns around and like treats him like a son and tells them that he can do better probably a lot of profanity based on the ray Kroc uh, autobiography i read he was not (laughs) he was definitely willing to throw some swears in there but then yeah that idea that immediately turning around after cutting someone down and being like you can do this you can step up i just believe ray Kroc was a horrible man (laughs) (laughs) The emphasis here in the case study is about their control over the restaurants and the discipline that they're trying to instill in them. And largely, this comes down to the bathrooms. They really want McDonald's to have clean bathrooms. The the head executive of McDonald's is spending like 70% of their time just visiting franchise operations. I'm a fan of that. That sounds like a fun job. There was a quote that I really liked from Fortune magazine that said that McDonald's had become a symbol of stability. 
mm-hmm. because a, a McDonald's meal tastes pretty much the same everywhere. You know, and that same thing, the quality of the bathrooms is always going to be high. You're going to get your food hot. It's going to be very quick. It's always going to taste the same. That idea of a symbol of stability is such an interesting idea to put on a corporate franchise operation that is rapidly spreading throughout the world. Yeah, but I think they're not wrong. You have to pay attention to those small details. It reminds me of my dad's theories about restaurants. You know, the bathroom is everything. If the bathroom is not clean, the restaurant can't be good. And it's funny that my dad grew up in the 50s and 60s and Ray Kroc, this is where he's coming from too. You know, it seems sort of ingrained into almost like a civic duty to at least my dad. And I wonder if there's an aspect of that sort of civic representation or uh, reputation. There's another line in this case study talking about the president that took over after Ray Kroc. And he was asked, what's on your mind these days? And his response was, we've got some 20,000 bathrooms that need to be cleaned every day. Maintaining that expectation with the customer that these are clean, family-friendly places to eat is, is what I think that comes back to. I hear echoes of Tim Cook in there too. Where it's like, I'm the successor to the mastermind who put this all together, and my job is to keep it running exactly the same. There was a really interesting line in here. Moreover, by the late 1980s, corporate headquarters were preoccupied with environmental and nutritional issues. But what's important is we need to provide delicious food for people that they actually want to eat. This case study highlights some of the attempts at doing things a little bit better and healthier while also showing that the numbers show want their fast food to be delicious, fatty, greasy. Yeah, as we talked about in the first episode, I think the McDonald's play here is not to come up with a solution or solve the problem. They're just minimizing risk when it comes to like nutrition, environmental stuff. They see doing visibly poorly as a threat and they don't see like doing well as a strength at all. That idea that you have to be on the right side of history in terms of environmentalism does, I think, correspond more to a marketing strategy, even as it has real business impact. You know, it also aligns with the clean bathrooms a little bit. There's an ethos to it, which I really appreciate. That's true. You you would expect McDonald's to be more the leader in that space than some of the other chains. Right, because they want the visibility and they want the recognition, the reputation. As we move into sort of talking about the second part of this case study, which starts talking about the marketing strategy of McDonald's over the years, and even from the very beginning, Croc saying, we're not going to have jukeboxes, telephones, cigarette machines. He was super anti-pinball machine or anything that made it more of a hangout space for people. As he says, he doesn't want it to be a place with leather jacketed guys in smoke-filled rooms as a hamburger joint. He wants it to be a place that his wife wants to go with him. He's absolutely right. And I think the original McDonald's, you couldn't even sit down. The business model sort of relies on coming and going. There's also a tension here about whose McDonald's is it? He talks about bringing his wife. They're trying to make it a family place. That makes a lot of sense. My question in this case study is sort of like, whose McDonald's is it? Is it still a family restaurant? Is it now in 2023? They talk about the early success they had in advertising to children. And we saw that in the launch in the Soviet Union as well, when they launched a full children's show about travel and would always end up in visiting a McDonald's. If you know you can take your kids there, there, your customer is also just going to be buying more things. And so making it family friendly, making it focused on children, that was the sort of first wave of marketing that this case study really speaks to. So compared to Apple, again, Apple also did a big educational push in the 80s. Yeah, that's interesting. The idea that you might 
grow out of that over time or you've seeded it in such a way that you don't feel like you need to focus on it anymore or it's sort of like you've ingrained it in the culture because the people who grew up with that are now adults and they sort of they carry that within them and you don't have to say it out loud anymore going back to that first wave of that advertising in the 1950s there's a executive that was saying that you know marketing to children became a way to reach adults the quote is like i knew if we could get the kids we would get their folks too so he's devoting a massive advertising budget to three children show in the minneapolis area that actually turns into the real focus of mcdonald's including through the 60s and the development of ronald mcdonald and then that launches the ongoing massive campaign campaign for children, including the rollout of McDonald lands. And by 1995, about 40% of McDonald's restaurants had playgrounds for children. Right. So there's a question of like, are they, are they pushing on this too hard? And I think that's what the case study is about. Then the question is, you know, what are the actual demographics of the people showing up at McDonald's? Exactly. Because at the beginning of the article, they drop this thing in there, which is frequent diners who accounted for 75% of U.S. sales visited McDonald's at least twice a week, intended to be male, age 15 to 35. So they set the stage for this with the larger context of it's 1995 and fast food is a $93.9 billion business. Adults age 35 and older are 44% of the visits. Children under 17 are 23%. Essentially double the amount of people on the older side than the younger side. And then with that, these 15 to 35 men coming in over and over and over again. And that's actually where the majority of your sales are coming from. And yet those people are not being targeted by your advertising. And then they've tried to do like healthier food. They tried something in in 1985 called the McDLT. Because if you look at the quarter pounder, it's actually like a pretty plain hamburger. All they did was add tomato and lettuce to the quarter pounder. But the presentation of it was, this is our new adult burger. It came in a foam package, again, where you could like split this, the cold stuff from the warm stuff and combine it at the last second. It seems like a gimmick. They're, they're trying to do the McDLT. Um, and then the McLean Deluxe is more of the diet thing. Before we get to the McLean Deluxe, just like talking about the struggle of the McDLT, they talked about in 1986 that McDonald's was putting heavy pressure on their ad agency to push McDLT sales so they could sell McDLTs, but only as much as they advertised them. The McDLT never caught on on its own. It didn't become something that people saw on the menu and bought. It's like it had to be constantly barraging them via advertising for them to really decide, okay, now this is something we care about. Which is why I think when it disappeared, no one cared. Yeah, I think that makes sense. By separating the things and making you combine them, it's very un-McDonald's to me. They did it in a clever way, but it's creating something that is slightly outside of that sort of immediate memory of what McDonald's is. It's like a complicated little side project. It's a good idea and it highlights the quality of the hot side and the cold side. I do feel like it's not McDonald's. And they must have had problems after they stopped with foam packaging. Also a lot harder to present the hot and the cold side. Good point. This is all related. And in 1991, right around the time, actually, that the styrofoam thing is happening, they replaced the McDLT with the McLean Deluxe. I remember the McLean Deluxe. Were you in high school? I was in high school. I was working at McDonald's. It was such a dry patty. I didn't remember that it was mixed with carrageenan, a seaweed derivative. Did you know that? I didn't know that. That's that's pretty futuristic. I feel like that would be happening now and people would be more excited about it. It feels kind of early dystopian. <laughs> McLean Deluxe is made of seaweed. 
<laughs> this obviously is McDonald's trying to tie into early 90s health trends. Yeah, absolutely. This is the age of inline roller skating and the president candidate going jogging. This is Nike coming to power. So they, they do this thing and it lasts a surprising amount of time. I did not realize it lasted almost five years until 1996. But I think for McDonald's, that's a poor return on investment to develop something and get it out into the market and then have it end after five years. I think it is a bad return on, on that individual investment, but I think the strategy is not wrong. I think it's sort of like the venture capitalist who expects nine out of 10 things to fail. But I think it is probably at some level, they do realize that they have to try things that don't succeed in order to try things that do. It's interesting that they went from the McDLT to the McLean Deluxe because what did they learn from the McDLT that made them decide, oh, what we actually need is to do that, but healthier? Mm, hard to say. But then from that McLean Deluxe failure, jumping into, we're going to do the McLean Deluxe, but the not healthy version. We're going to do the Arch Deluxe. Well, from a period of 1986 until the whatever happens to the Arch Deluxe, so that's at least 10, 15, 20 years, they've got a spot in their menu that is sort of like the progressive alternative burger. You know, they're using that spot in the roster okay, the styrofoam goes out, we got to get something else in. What's the trend? It's health food. Let's get the McLean Deluxe in there. Okay, nobody's eating that. There's this great quote from Vice President Starman who says, people talk thin and eat fat, which was like copied verbatim from an analyst several years before that or something. They're keeping a spot open for these things, seeing how they do. And, and they're, putting a, they're putting a lot of money behind the advertising for this idea of the adult burger. Yes. And that is the main point of our case study is the marketing of this new Arch Deluxe. Andrew Salvaggio, McDonald's executive chef, food enthusiast, and the man who actually created the Arch Deluxe. The best ingredients are just the start of a great burger. So the development of the Arch Deluxe, I think, is a amazing story. Yes. Let's go over the objectives. They're valuing this, this sandwich as what it does to their brand. They want to create a $500 million brand by the end of 1996. They want to invite adults back into McDonald's, um, and they want to generate a system of unity and pride. Oof. This idea that it fits in within the larger cohesive uh, collection of menu items. So they partner with Andrew Salvaggio, or at least they hire him, uh, who's the head chef at Chicago's famous pump room. These quotes they got from Salvaggio about what he was trying to accomplish, it's definitely some of the highlights of this case study. And it's interesting he's selling it so hard. The stone ground mustard sauce. Mmm. The soft, comforting potato roll. I'm in the zone. All layered together in one symphony of taste. He's got this quote, the leaf lettuce that looks torn rather than shredded lettuce. He's telling us the sandwich has an adult taste, but it's not in any one bite. It's how the sandwich makes you feel. There are two mustards on the burger that he explains because it's like as if the refrigerator had been raided. There's a vitality here. He's telling you, you have two mustards in your refrigerator. You've got hickory smoked bacon. You've got a Weber barbecue in the back. The potato roll bun is soft and nurturing. R very heavy handed. Like, can you imagine Francis Ford Coppola walking you through his movie and being like, and here's what you're going to feel in this scene. To his credit, though, he's really trying something and he believes it. And so we're going to get to the launch of this and we're going to talk a little bit about what we would do. But there's some numbers I want to point out. And they've got this chart in the back of exhibit one of the sales. And to my eye, the franchises at this time that are really growing 
building that have 20%, 14%, 12% change in total units are Taco Bell, Subway Sandwiches, Dunkin' Donuts, Applebee's is like growing like mad. The chains that are in very low percent change of total units are the hamburger places, McDonald's, Burger King. Wendy's, Hardee's. It seems like there's a trend here. The sales, the 1994 US sales difference between the number one ranked chain, which is McDonald's, is huge. It's almost $10 billion. And so let's get into it. We are back at our hamburger business review classroom. We're at the end of this case study. My first question to you, Mike, let's pretend you're a McDonald's investor. It's 1996. You now know everything in this case study. Where are you? Are you long? Are you short? Are you going to buy? Are you going to sell? Now, as an investor in McDonald's, do I believe that's going to massively impact sales? I don't think so. I don't see where the Arch Deluxe is going to dramatically change a McDonald's franchise restaurant, even if it's as successful as they say it is. That's a good point. The Pump Room Chef is a fun idea. I wouldn't rely on it to stick, but I I think it's like a, um, there's something very McDonald's about it. It's very operationally focused. I would take this hamburger launch as a signal that McDonald's is on the right track. The thing I like the most about this is the idea of the Arch Deluxe becoming a new platform within McDonald's. It's not just a single new burger like the McDLT or the McLean Deluxe, but it's potentially a whole new brand that gets to be changed, updated, and modified over time with specials, etc. I appreciate that ambition, even though it's hard for me to buy in because you and I live in the future and it's easy to look back and say, oh, it didn't seem like it had much of an impact. But I think there's a potential here for another type of restaurant to be growing like inside McDonald's. The more adult version of McDonald's, moving away from the sort of Ronald McDonald grimace and more into an adult staple of your diet. Yeah, that's, that's good marketing. And it's nice to have another story to tell besides like Grimace. There's this amazing Exhibit 5 at the last page of this case study that I think I want to print out and frame on my wall. It's it's gorgeous. But it starts with this flowchart of improvements to learnings. So they monitor the temperature and time settings in the fryer. They learn that the vat temperature is still vary. They monitor the vat temperature. They learn that like, oh, the potatoes solids content is really important. So they learn to use Idaho russet potatoes, and then they learn all these other things. And I think this is, to me, the lesson of the Arch Deluxe, that it's a stepping stone on a very complicated path that can't be foreseen. I I think it's unfair to judge it on the success of its own hamburger sales. I think you have to look at the evolution of McDonald's as a whole and see where it fits in. The process improvements, as much as they are for designing the best possible product, it's also how do you do it in the best way that is the easiest and the cheapest on site once you're there. And so you have these these dual set of requirements that sort of conflict with one another. I think McDonald's, they can't always be advancing both of their values at the same time. There's something, there's a little bit more drama there. The Arch Deluxe, there's a little more drama there. <laughs> Not a simple hamburger. Not a simple hamburger is a pretty good tagline. That's an image I think we could end on. with the grown-up taste, McDonald's Arch Deluxe.